week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. In 2001, three Spanish teams all withdrew from the Tour of Flanders. Anse, Benesto and Kelme all decided not to compete in the Belgian Monument Classic. At the time, the Tour of Flanders was part of the UCI World Cup and all of the top Division 1 teams were obliged to take part in 9 out of the 10 races in the World Cup series. UCI President Hein Verbruggen was far from happy with the decision of the Spanish teams, saying it devalues the quality of the race to have to give 8 wildcards out of the 22 teams. But the fact of the matter was that the Spanish teams simply weren't interested and the extra wildcards allowed the organisers to invite second tier French and Belgian teams who were extremely eager to take part. The Rabobank team manager, Theo de Roy, did not agree with Verbruggen and said, Now other teams can start. I don't know any Spanish rider who has a chance on Sunday anyway. And history suggests that de Roy is not wrong. No Spanish rider has ever won the Tour of Flanders. Only one Spaniard has ever even finished on the podium, which was Juan Antonio Flecha in 2008. And the same can be said of the other famous cobbled monument, Paris-Roubaix. No Spanish winner ever, and just Flecha and Miguel Pablé have ever finished on the podium. Welcome to this, episode 7 of This Week in Cycling History, with me, John Galloway, and my co-host... Killian Kelly. Um, the Spanish should just ride in Spain, Killian. I mean, the Tour of Flanders, is, it's for northern hardmen, it's not for southern softies anyway, is it? Yeah, that's the point, I suppose, is is that uh, the, the way cycling was set up then, and very similar to the way it's set up now with the World Tour, is that team you get teams riding races that really they, they don't want to be riding. And um, like I said in the piece, there's so many of the pro continental teams that would, you know, that would make their whole season to to get a ride in in the Tour of Flanders or Paris Roubaix. And uh, I mean, I suppose you've got maybe two categories of the World Tour teams. You have the super teams like. Uh, BMC and, and Sky and um, all, all those teams that, you know, you know, they want to be present everywhere and, and to try and win all kinds of races. But then, like the, like you say, the Spanish teams, like Euskatel, Euskadi is the, is the prime example. You know, they don't want to be riding Paris-Roubaix. They're just doing this just because they have to, you know. And, uh, I think it's a, it's a double whammy, actually. The, the idea that you can ride the races that you want, is, it wins on two levels because there's a lot of trouble with funding in the sport just now and forcing teams to travel to races that they frankly can't afford to go to. Uh, taking away that, I think, would benefit the sport. But as you say, bringing through the pro county teams who are gagging for a ride and getting them exposure and potentially more sponsorships a win as well. Yeah, and from a, from a financial point of view as well, I mean, at the end of the day, these teams exist because sponsors have poured money into them. And, uh, I mean, I, I'm not too sure about the the sponsorship goals of, of a lot of these businesses, but I know, for instance, like the Unpost John Kelly team, like the only reason they, well, one of the reasons they haven't moved from the continental level to the pro-continental level is because Unpost is a domestic service. It's the, the Irish National Post Service. So... You know, they don't really care about getting international exposure. And I suppose the, the same could be said for a lot of these sponsors. Some of them are international, but Euskatel, Euskadi, you know, that's, is, yeah. is that not completely exclusive to Spain? Um, so, you know, why do they care about riding in, in, in northern France over these cobbles? The Tour de France obviously is different because of its ridiculous global appeal. Yeah. But uh, all, all, all the other races, you know... It just makes sense to me that if you don't want to ride it, don't ride it. As part of the world tour, maybe you can be, uh, you can ride it if you want to. You have say first, 
first refusal. Yeah, first refusal. But uh, why not let one of these smaller Belgian and French teams into ride this race? Who, who, who would be more active on the front? I mean, look, I, I look back over the results of Paris Roubaix over the last few years, and since Uscatel were were a team, their highest result in Paris Roubaix was was Inigo Landalus in two thousand and two. He came thirty eight. Wait. Set the cobbles on fire. Come in thirty eight. Yeah. yeah. So they. I mean, it just it doesn't make sense to me. But then, but then again, I I, I know um, Scott was talking to Jonathan Waters in, in in the big interview he did for for the VeloCast, and um, Waters had this idea that you know you should make riders ride Roubaix. Like, wouldn't it be interesting to see Contador having to ride Paris Roubaix and and to suffer all sorts of consequences, perhaps financial, if he doesn't. But uh, I, I just I don't know about that. Like if he's not interested in riding it, he's he's not gonna he's not gonna shape the race or have any effect. Uh, you know, it's it's similar and and yet not similar in a way to the, the old World Cup. You know, to win the old UCI World Cup, you had to be competitive in most of these of a series of ten races. And of course, you'd get riders that like say for instance Eric Zabel. Who would be great in Milan San Remo and and be be quite good in Paris Tours and that, but he 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 never liked Paris Roubaix, and uh, the same way Philippe Gilbert doesn't like Paris Roubaix now, but uh, you know they're still at the end of the day they're they're one day riders and and it's only slightly different to what they're used to. But throwing Contador into Roubaix, I, I I just I wouldn't I don't see a real benefit. It it, it would be. You know, it would be amusing maybe <laughs> for the first while, but uh, I, I just, it, from a sporting point of view, I, I just, I can't see, can't see it working. Now we'll finish, uh, we'll finish today's show with a, a tale about somebody who could actually win Grand Tours and win Ruby. But uh, we started with a bit about the Tour of Flanders, and it's only right actually that we're recording this on Sunday morning on the eighth of April, and. We're both gagging for Paris-Roubaix later today, so let's have a story about uh, an earlier edition of that race. This week in cycling history in 1969, Walter Godefroot won Paris-Roubaix. Godefroot attacked the lead group with 30 kilometres to go and won solo in the Roubaix Velodrome, more than three minutes clear of the runner-up, Eddie Merckx. Godefroot and Merckx were a similar age, and so began rising through the ranks of Flemish cycling at the same time. But it was Godefroot who impressed earlier, winning a bronze medal in the Summer Olympics in 1964, where Merckx only managed 12th. And Godefroot would also go on to beat Merckx into second place at the Belgian National Championships the following year. Both riders turned pro for the Solo Superior team in 1965, a team which was then led by classics legend Rick Van Looy. Godefroot said about the atmosphere in the team, I was in awe of Van Looy, but Merckx wasn't. Whether this made Van Looy treat us a little differently, I don't know. But Rick allowed me into his clique of riders. He didn't do the same for Merckx. Van Looy and Merckx had a very difficult relationship from the start. Merckx switched to the Peugeot team shortly afterward. This allowed him to go head-to-head with Godefroot at races, where Van Looy, filled with envy and resentment, would constantly ride negatively against Merckx, the young pretender to his classics crown. But at the 1969 Paris-Roubaix, all three riders were on separate teams. Van Looy was riding the race for the final time, but did not feature in the finale and ended the race in 22nd place. Merckx and Godefroot made it into the winning move. With Godefroot having attacked with 30 kilometers to go, he had three remarkably strong teammates behind, marshalling Merckx, Eric Lehmann and the de Vlamink brothers. Merckx, who was the defending champion, joined forces with another former winner, Felice Gimondi, to try and reel in Godefroot, but they ultimately failed. Godefroot said this about the finish in the Roubaix Velodrome. 
For a split second, I thought about riding up to the finish, then stopping, getting off my bike and hopping on one leg over the line. At that time, everyone always said, too often for my taste, that Merck's one-on-one leg. Hence, right then I dreamt for a moment to do exactly this, to cross the finish line hopping on one leg. Merckx would go on that summer to win his first of five Tours de France and would eventually become the greatest cyclist of all time, whereas Godefruit, although racking up a number of significant wins in a stellar career, only won one further classic, the Tour of Flanders in 1978. However, Merckx has said in recent years that Godefruit was the only one of his adversaries who he had never beaten in a direct fight for victory. So a step back to 1969. I mean, I think we're blessed with the period of cycling we're living in now because we've got a number of grand riders, particularly in the single-day classics, uh, contending against each other. But how exciting would it have been to, to have been watching the emergence of Merckx? And Godefruit, we know him as a DS, but it proves he was a damn decent rider. Yeah, he he was. And um, I suppose all the bits and pieces I read, um, putting this bit together... Um, lamented the fact that he did sort of fizzle out um after this like like i said he he did have many wins like he won the green jersey and he won stages of the tour but as a classics rider um i suppose you might say he was never the same afterwards so I'm, not, I'm not really sure why but um when when he started the the piece i read that that it was there was an interview with walter godfrey and he said that he um him and Merck started on the same solo superior team. Now, the, the trusty internet, I couldn't find it anywhere on the internet that said Walter Godfrey rode for the solo superior team. But he, if he said it himself in an interview, I suppose it must be true. Yeah, you would and hope that, so. And, yeah, you'd think so. And in 1965, when Merck's and apparently Godfrey started on the solo superior team, like I said in the thing, Rick Van Loy was there, but Rick Van Steenbergen was also on that team at the time. He was in his last year. He wasn't really cycling properly anymore. He was just doing Criterium races and 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 those type of things. But a bit, you know, imagine Merckx, Van Loy, and Van Steenbergen were all on the same team, and Walter Godefroy. Well, that's three transitions, isn't it? Because I mean, Van Steenbergen was the, the the giant of his time, Rick one, and then you got Rick two. Van Loy, and apparently him and Merckx had a very, very fraught relationship on that team, uh, and, and more or less hated each other. Yeah, that's the impression I got. Yeah, um, the, like like you said, the transition between Van Steenbergen and Van Loy, I think, was quite admirable and amicable, and and they they got on quite quite well, but it didn't quite go the same way with Van Loy and Merckx. And throughout the, the history of cycling, these these transitions of the greats are. are kind of fascinating you know i i know it's slightly different but with the tour de france it's been very neat um and i and that's no coincidence you know you, you'd have you have anka teal who overlapped slightly with Merckx, who overslapped lightly with slightly with eno and then i suppose you had le mans for a while filling the gap and then indrain and then armstrong you know it's very very neat these transitions and uh i think so, just some people are more willing to to uh relinquish their their crown and are ready to to move on and believe themselves that they've they're past their prime and obviously others aren't and maybe van loy just wasn't quite ready to uh to relinquish this king of the classics crown that he had it's funny actually because i was uh, i was reading an interview with roger de Vlaming, uh, about philippe pizzato in today's roubaix and he's, he's talking up Boonin and how he loves Boonin. But at the end, he can't help but have a wee dig that, you know, he won't win all five of the monuments like we did. Um, yeah. So even when they're well past their prime, to be that great a champion, you've got to have an ego the size of a planet. 
So it, I think it's always going to be a difficult transition. One thing that quite interested me that I hadn't noticed before was that when Merckx left um, the team with Van Loy, uh, he moved on to have Tommy Simpson as his mentor at Peugeot, and he said that Simpson actually helped shape him as a rider. That's something that I had never known until you know I started looking at this for today's show. So it's another way in which uh, poor Tommy was a, a great cont- contributor to our sport, other than his own wins. But let's not get sidetracked by uh, by Tommy Simpson, however great he was. We're talking about Paddy Roubaix and Walter Godefruit just now. And uh, what I would say is, he was hideously ugly as well. He was like his days, Andre Greipel. A face like a bag of spanners. <laughs> he, he was, yeah. Unfortunate looking man when when he's cycling alongside good looking guys like Merckx and Simpson. It only makes it all the worse. <laughs> but... Uh, he, he he said um, there was a great quote I found that Godfrey said about uh, Paris Roubaix. He said, "I was born on the pavé. When I was a junior riding in Flanders, all the races had sectors of pavé. Hence, there wasn't any special preparation for Paris Roubaix, and I never raced it with gloves or a helmet. I didn't see any need for things like this. I saw riders with special gloves and extra padding on their handlebars. In my opinion, these guys were not the specialists. The ones who were really didn't need any of this stuff." Which I think is kind of interesting because the 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 thought now is the I suppose the the, the knowledge at the moment is that you really do need this stuff you know the, these marginal gains and and all this kind of thing and uh, it is a point of interest every year how these riders set up their bikes with their tire pressure and 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 all of that like I I know you've got a much better head for equipment than yeah, I actually, do but you I, don't I, want to get me started on that one mate I mean we'd, we'd well, have an hour and a half long podcast just about the equipment in Roubaix well I, I it is interesting like I suppose the two major ones that people remember are uh Steve Bauer wrote it in, in almost a, a recumbent well, the beast and uh it was called the Beast. It needed uh, the chain stays were so long it needed two full length Shimano chains. And was it was it not because he was slightly injured or something? Well, what he wanted to do essentially, um, <laughs> God, you've got me started now. I mean, there's a couple of famous quotes about that one, and the first was that Merckx almost tried t- tried to completely disown it by saying, "You know, it's nothing to do with me. We just built what he asked us." Um, and the other is that it was built because he wanted to sit really far back and use his glutes to push the bike along whilst pushing against a fairing effectively at the back of the saddle. But it was bog-awful ugly. Um, and I think he ruined the end of his career because to get used to it, he had to ride it in all the other races as well. Um, and Actually, I'm, we won't get started. The other one that I remember very notable was um, Bianchi built a, a full suspension road bike for uh, Johan Museo. Oh, yeah. and it broke quite dramatically and ruined their sales of full suspension for ages. But in traditional Italian form, when it had originally been designed, it had been built out of chromoly and used the flex of the chainstays to provide the suspension. But they made their first mistake by building it of aluminium, which doesn't have the kind of flex cycle of chromoly. You know, it fatigues as it flexes, which is bad enough. But then on race day, I think they decided um, they put the chain set on and there wasn't enough clearance for the inner chain ring. So they just put it in a vice and crushed the chainstay to make room. So, um, technology... You're right, John. I I shouldn't have got you started. (laughs) (laughs) I actually find it quite interesting. I mean, I'm a gearhead, which is apparently clear by now. I find it quite interesting that although they do talk about tyre pressure and stuff now, after the rock shocks and the full suspensions and the beast and... You know, the hybrid fork that broke and sent Hincapie into a ditch. 
we're back to bikes that actually do look reasonably normal or, you know, at worst, like cyclocross bikes. And I was really impressed with Boonin, who was out for the reconnaissance, I think, yesterday. And he was the only one of his team not wearing gloves. So that echoes exactly what Godefruit said back in the day. Now, talking about men who were uh, not soft, let's go to our final segment and people can cleanse their palate after listening to me waffling on about, uh, about gear too much. This is one of my great heroes. And uh, you actually pulled me up on this earlier on because I, uh, I subscribed to the legend, which is in fact utter crap. In 1981, Bernard Eno won Paris-Roubaix. It has become one of the most bandied about facts in cycling that Bernard Eno only rode Paris-Roubaix once. The legend has it that Eno hated the race, but goaded by riders and fans who said that he was simply scared of the race, he finally decided to partake in the Hell of the North in 1981. He won, and then never rode it again. But this legend is simply not true. Bernard Eno rode Paris-Roubaix several times, and finished in the top 15 on five occasions. However, he is obviously most famous for his performance in the 1981 edition, which he won while wearing the rainbow jersey of world champion. He remains the last rider to do so. Eno said this about his performance in 1981. I think I worked a little bit harder than normal that year because of the rainbow jersey. The day before the race, we did a bit of training as a whole team and I had la bonne condition. But Eno's condition was to be tested to its fullest thanks to a series of mishaps over the cobbles. In the first section of Pave, he punctured, and his teammate Pascal Poisson gave him a wheel. He immediately punctured again, only to be helped out by another teammate. In a further stretch of cobbles later in the race, Eno fell over three times in the space of 200 metres, and on the last sector of Pave, he rode straight into a dog and hit the deck once more. But each time, Eno rode hard and caught back on. He came to the velodrome in a group of six riders. He led from the front and crossed the line first to win the Queen of the Classics. Eno reckons he could have won it again too. He finished ninth in 1982, but in 1983 he stopped mid-race on purpose. Afterward, he said he was more focused on the GP Pino Chirami and Flesh Wallon the following week, and he went on to win both. Eno said about that edition of Paris-Roubaix, Honestly, if I had wanted to win, I could have, because when you say your season starts the following Thursday, and you go on to win two races, you're obviously going just as well on the Sunday before. What's more, I knew how to win it since I had already done so, but hey, I had decided not to bother. After 1983, Eno never rode Paris-Roubaix again. I actually just uh, just watched on YouTube this morning before we, we fired up or, you know fired up the steam-powered thing that Escape. I watched uh, the video of 1981 Paris-Roubaix, and there's this classic point where everybody thinks he's gone. Uh, you know, he's fallen, as you say, three times in 200 metres. And he gets up, and when he gets back to the group, the others just look around and go, oh, for sake, what is he doing back here? And the quote below the video, I think, summed up Eno perfectly. It says, when men were men, Bernardino was the man. <laughs> Very good, yeah. He, he had he had described that day as a, as a day of grace. And uh, he, even though he, he had fallen over so many times, he he, he reckoned he, he was still unbeatable, and he was, he, he was always going to win that race. And... Uh, like the the people he beat in in the sprint in the velodrome, there was six of them. Like they were they were no messers. Like there was in there there was Francesco Moser, Roger de Vlamic, and Mark de Meyer, who together had won all of the previous seven editions of Paris Roubaix. And as well, there was Henny Kuiper, who was who would win it in two years' time. And um, you know you know to 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 beat those guys, and he led the sprint from the front for pr- pretty much the entire lap. Uh, was just a ridiculous display of strength and confidence. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it almost sums up, you know, as Patron, because 
when I was watching it, one, it's an incredible display of, stre- display of strength in the velodrome. But the other is, he goes to the front and he, he kind of looks around and it's almost as if he's saying to them, don't you dare try to beat me. <laughs> and I think that, that intimidation that Eno had was a big part of his, you know, his arsenal when he was against people who were strong because he had such self-confidence and such belligerence that they were beaten almost before the sprint started. Yeah, and, and I suppose that just to rag on the self-confidence and the belligerence, like that story about the 1983 Paris-Roubaix, I mean, that kind of sums him up as well. He was like, yeah, you know, I could have could have won, but I just didn't really want to. And uh, I, I had a little bit of trouble uh, figuring out um, what actually happened in that 1983 Paris-Roubaix because I saw an interview with Bernardino who... Um, he said the reason he didn't want to finish Paris-Roubaix was because he he wanted to go and ride the Tour of America, which was on just before Paris-Roubaix in 1983. And it was the first ever top-level UCI race in America. So yep. he, he wanted to go and ride that. And uh, what Eno said was Felix Levitan, who was actually the Tour de France organizer at the time as well, um, was organizing Paris-Roubaix and didn't want... Uh, Eno riding the Tour of America because he said it would take away from the from his appearance at Paris Roubaix. So Eno went over, uh, didn't listen to Levitan, rode the Tour of America, dropped out just before the end, so as he would make it back in time for Paris Roubaix. And then, uh, as an almost show of uh, you know sticking up two fingers, he started Paris Roubaix and then and then obviously abandoned on purpose just to, yeah. to stick two fingers up to Levitan. But I, I'm not too sure about that because, from my understanding, Felix Leviton was the organizer of the Tour of America, not Paris Roubaix. So I don't know. Maybe Eno's getting his his wires crossed there, or or maybe me. I, I don't know. But um, I, I'll actually forgive Eno anything. I mean, he's one of my my great heroes, um, and right up there with Merck for me. Now, in the notes for today's show, uh, because we've talked before about the extensive preparation that we do, <laughs> I think it's it's only the second time that I've ever seen porno in a set of notes in any show that I've been involved with. And the last time was about when somebody hacked uh, hacked some Spanish bike hire terminals to show hardcore porn. So, I mean, what, That's a bit of a rock, John. I thought you were going to mention something about Mario Cipollini. <laughs> <laughs> so why have, you put, why have you sullied our notes with porno? Uh, in, uh, before the 1981 race, which Eno won, uh, he, <laughs> the, again, the legend has it that uh, they put on a movie in the team bus which was a which was a porno to uh, to try I, I don't know what what the what the goal was but I suppose to try and relax the riders and and uh, you know re- relief of tension maybe I don't know I don't know how far they went with that oh, I, I, I tell you I wouldn't want to be no I'm I'm just going to close the door on that one and not talk anymore now this. This is a particularly sore point for me because uh, I, I pride myself on having a reasonable knowledge of the sport. And a couple of years ago, I did a, a kind of guide to the classics as a guest in the Velo Club Don Logan after the original Velocast had stopped and mentioned this old saw about, you know, only riding it once, winning it and never riding it again. And I think that's when we first properly uh, conversed because you called me on it, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I couldn't help myself. Uh, <laughs> Bugger. <laughs> Uh, it's just it's just something that gets mentioned so often, and it's just so wrong. I mean, he's uh, you know it's not like he 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 competed seven times and just rolled around and did nothing. Like he came fourth the year before he won it, uh, yeah. and you know he's had all these string of top fifteen, so he 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 was very competitive for a number of years. And I I don't know really how how it got started. I suppose it's because there's a couple of famous quotes of Eno saying how much he hated the race and. 
and uh, I, I don't know maybe they just they just got lost in translation and were morphed and and uh, we, we've ended up with this just fallacy that's that gets passed around now but it's definitely definitely not true Eno has ridden Perry Roubaix lots of times to be fair, I'm, I'm not moaning. Richard Moore quotes it in his, his book Slaying the Badger, which, other than that, I'd recommend. It's a fantastic book. Very, um, very good. Yeah, yeah. Now, we're recording this actually just as Paddy Roubaix is about to start. I think it's eight minutes before the official start time just now. I've got to put you in the spot. Who's going to win today? Um, I saw uh, Rupert Guinness on Twitter earlier saying, uh, "Oh, it's it's very it's very easy to to say that Tom Boonen is going to win, but uh, I have a feeling it might be a surprise." <laughs> but like, <laughs> that's a very very easy thing to say on the morning, you know. Uh, you know, he didn't mention any names. He just said maybe it's, maybe it won't be Boonen. Uh, you know, it's it is hard to see past Boonen. Like he he's just he's had the most incredible season. Like nobody's ever won. The E3 Prize and Ghent Wevelgem and the Tour of Flanders in the same year before, and uh, you know he almost won Head Falk as well. He he was winning stages in Qatar. He's just he hasn't done anything wrong. He has just had the most perfect preparations yeah. for this race. And the fact that Cancellara isn't there, I suppose that was that was maybe what what Rupert Guinness was getting at was that uh, because Cancellara isn't there, maybe it'll be harder for Boone. Which is I think there's an element of truth in that. In that uh, you know Boone attacks. Cancellara might chase him down. Cancellara attacks Boonen might chase him down. And all the while, four or five riders might be getting dragged along behind. But now yeah. Boonen attacks. Who's going to chase? Everybody's going to be looking at each other. There is no uh, standout second favourite that the way Cancellara would be if he was there. Yeah, totally. so, so they're all going to be looking at each other going, well, I'm not chasing him down. You know, you know, I, I want to be the one that gets dragged along. So, uh, And then even if people do chase him down, Boonen is probably most likely to win in the sprint anyway. Yeah. So I, I, but again, it comes back to this element of luck and bad luck that you that, that can crop up in Paris Roubaix. I, I can't remember who who said it. Maybe it was Hincapi, um, who said uh, you don't need good luck to win Paris Roubaix. You just need to not have bad luck. Yeah. And, and 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 that's very true. Like I remember, the, it was the last time Tom Boonen won it in two thousand and nine. He just seemed to have this force field around him. Uh, there was a group of uh, seven or eight riders got away and he, he was part of it and just one by one they all just fell over and and every time Boonham was just in just had this air of invincibility that nothing was going to touch him and nothing did and he just he, he never attacked he just kept on riding and everybody else just people fell, fell off the back yeah and that's just that's the that's the way it can happen and uh, I think if like for instance now last year Boonen's race was over in the Arnberg Forest it's, I think his chain snapped or, or something terrible happened and uh, and that was it that was the end and um, un- unless something really really terrible happens to Boonen I, I think it'll be it's, it's very difficult to imagine a set of circumstances in which he's not going to win No and I mean he's got his chance to make his own mark in the history book because if he wins he'll join I think De Vlaemink on four wins at Roubaix um, and, but more than that, I think it'll be the first time that anybody's ever done the Flanders Roubaix double twice. Yeah, that's true. And it, it, at the moment, um, he's won Flanders and Roubaix six times, three three times each, and that's the most ever. Nobody's ever won both of those races combined more than six. So he's really uh, got a chance to. <laughs> I mean, as if he hasn't etched his name in history already. But you know, he he really can uh, poke his head up above the greats now if he if he wins today. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to say the same. The only the only real threat I can see coming in a direct head to head is from Pizzato, 
who looked incredibly strong in Flanders and in, uh, in Ken Vevelgrim. So he, he he did, yeah. And in that 2009 race, the last one, Bruno Mon Patara was last man standing, um, yeah. almost literally. Uh, so yeah, and 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 he, Pizarro can sprint as well. I know, I know, he he didn't quite get him um, in the Tour of Flanders, but. Uh, you know, depending on the circumstances, Pizarro had to do a lot of work to bridge up to Boonen that day. So, uh, depending on how they come to the finish together, if they come to the finish together, I wouldn't rule out Pizarro beating Boonen in a sprint either. No, and I think I think what it comes down to is we've got the usual prognostications about who's strong. But the great thing about this race, and it's shown us it time and time again, is that literally anything can happen. Yeah, And that makes it one of the, the most exciting races of the uh, of the calendar to watch. So, that's the end of this, episode 7 of This Week in Cycling History. If you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, I'm at SofaBoy and Killian's the Irish Peloton. If you want to donate to help, you know, pay for Killian's beer money or, you know, whatever, you can do it via the site, which is velocast.cc, and just mention that you want some of the money to go towards Killian. And please, please leave a comment on iTunes, because it really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening. It's a bollocks, this race. You're working like an animal. You don't have time to piss. You wet your pants. You're riding in mud. You're slipping. It's a pile of shit. And when asked would he ever ride it again, he shrugged and said, sure, it's the most beautiful race in the world.